Hello, investors, and welcome to Episode 5 of Dissecting the Deal. Today's guest, Dion McNeely. Welcome, everyone, to Dissecting the Deal. I am your host, Michael Liticote, and it is a wonderful and very exciting episode that we've got for you today. I'm very excited for you guys to listen to Dion McNeely. Dion is a former military man, and he has found a strategy that works for him on how to become a millionaire. And it is something that anybody can do as long as you can get a home loan. I'm not going to spend any more time prepping the episode. I just want to get into it and go from there. I'll see you on the other side. Today's name drop from Dion was really interesting. He recommended a book by Andrew Ballard. The book is titled, Your Opinion Doesn't Matter. You can find it on Amazon. And what Dion had to say about the book was that it was really helpful for putting things in context with his tenants and figuring out how to be a good landlord. It's definitely worth a check out if you haven't had an opportunity to dive into it. I know I've put it onto my library reading list. Hopefully you will too and get some value out of it. Dion was tired of losing sources of income due to things he had no control of. After Desert Storm, the Marines downsized. In 2008, he was laid off from a police department because of the recession. As a single parent with three kids working as a CDL instructor, in 2010, he decided to start buying small multifamily rentals using the house hacking method. He found a way for almost anyone to reach financial freedom in less than 10 years, no matter what they are making at their current job. Dion, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. I'm very happy and excited to have you here. Um, tell us uh, about your deal. I'm just actually I'm really happy to be here because the goal is to help as many people as possible realize how easy it is to achieve financial freedom because when we hear things like this we're always focused on big huge numbers and it doesn't take very many changes to to make it happen with um, my strategy it's based on house hacking so buying a, a place you know a small multifamily duplex triplex fourplex you get the same lending as uh, as, as buying a house, you know, 30 year fixed rate, low interest rate, you can do owner occupy. And the first step is if you remove your housing costs. So if you can live in a place with almost no cost out of pocket, or even getting paid to live there, then it's a lot easier to increase your savings rate, because most people talk about eliminating Starbucks and eating out and don't drink and don't take trips and all these small things that can affect your finances instead of looking at the biggest expense, which was housing. Right, because sixty bucks a month doesn't really move the needle in a savings account for uh, independent wealth. No, in the in the beginning, I wasn't even sure if I could uh, handle being a landlord and working full time. So I kind of dipped my toes in the water and moved from my house into an apartment and rented the house out. And oh, sure. my, my first experience was really bad. Horrible tenant <laughs> made every mistake you can. You know, rented to a friend with a handshake, no lease. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. And it <laughs> went really bad. But when I finally got a good tenant and I realized that I could handle this, I moved into a duplex. I purchased a duplex. And here's, I mean, just one move, this is how much it affected finances. I was paying $1,500 a month to live in an apartment. I moved into a duplex and that lowered my out-of-pocket cost to 300. And you were a teacher, right? So math comes pretty quick. You've yep, done yep. that. That sounds like a $1,200 difference, but really people always forget about taxes. And in a, about a 30% tax bracket, in order to make $1,500, you have to actually make $1,950 to have the 15 to pay for the apartment. 
Right. And when you reduce that down to 300, now I need to earn 390. So the change was basically, you know, almost $1,500 to just move from one place to another in my pocket every month that I used to spend. And that's just the first one. It actually gets better with the second one because then you actually get to also rent out the unit you were living in. And this last house hack that I did, I'm in a fourplex now. Um, I'm being paid $1,700 to live in my house, my fourplex here. So I'm in one unit, the other three are rented out, profiting $1,700 a month. But instead of paying 300 for the duplex, that is now cash flowing $800 a month. So again, one move, my finances changed about $2,500 a month just by willing, being willing to move from one place to another. Right. And it confuses me that more people don't do something like this, especially well, in real estate. Well, because it doesn't fit the model, right? Like, like the, the Americana model is go find the largest amount of home you can buy that we will qualify you for. And that's what you need to live in. Wait three to five years when your income increases and then go get the bigger house that you need, which you don't need. But again, that's the model. That's what we're sold, right? Right. And a lot of times when I talk to people about, for instance, the reason my strategy works for me is because I'm really, really lazy. Um, <laughs> in real estate, there's, you know, it's flipping. That's, you have to find the deal, work on the deal, sell. I mean, there's so many steps to that. It's like a job. It's episodical. And then you have wholesaling, which means you have to find good off-market deals, build a buyer's list and all these things. And with my strategy, I, I have to live somewhere. So instead of doing the normal model of, you know, asking a realtor and a lender, how much can I qualify for? Let's find a house that costs that much. Um, I live in, in basically in an apartment, except I get to pick the neighbors. Right. And a lot of people say, well, there's, there's no way I could do that. I have kids. Well, I have three kids. I'm a single parent. I was able to pull it off. And, and when a person says they can't do house hacking because they have a family, I think that's kind of a reverse logic. The reason to do house hacking is a family. I mean, right. I, as a CDL instructor, when I first started at the school, I was making about $17 an hour trying to raise three kids on one income. It wasn't real easy. And now you flash forward between eight and 10 years later. Now work is completely optional. I make more money off of rental properties than I was making as a police officer. And my kids will inherit a couple million dollars of real estate without me having to really do anything other than move every couple of years. Right. No, my, my wife dreads moving and uh, she's just like, I, I hate moving into it. And then, uh, but being able to put it in that context of, yes, we're moving, but oh, and by the way, here's how much our income is going to increase because the move would probably go over a little better. Yeah. And it's not like you move forever. You move two or three times. Uh, so I have um, five properties under contract for the sixth now, and I've only house hacked really twice. So once to get into the duplex, once to get into the fourplex. Once you eliminate your housing costs, it's so it's not so easy, but it's a lot easier to increase the savings rate to start buying those investment properties that you don't move into. Right. The savings rate is, you know, when you start adding $1,500 a month on top of your savings rate, that adds up really quick. Yeah. Yeah. That snowball can get going downhill real fast. Mm -hmm. Very cool. So uh, tell us about this fourplex. You, you, did you find it on market, off market? How did you find it? So I don't know if you've heard of the book, um, and it's also a podcast called One Rental at a Time. Uh, but it's, it's, it, it almost outlined my strategy 100%. Nothing is, is special. I don't have access to any off-market deals. All my properties are off the MLS. I use traditional lending. I'm not using hard money. I'm not using uh, my own cash. I mean, other than saving for the down payments. Um, so the one that I'm in now, it was on the market. 
was uh, for it was listed at 595, uh, which in I'm, all my units are between Tacoma and Olympia in Washington. Okay. And which a lot of people think is a kind of an expensive market. And for regular rentals, it might be. When I first started, I wanted to do single family houses, but the numbers didn't work. You'd, you'd find a $400,000 house that rented for $1,800 <laughs> a month here. Yeah. Nowhere's near the 1% rule. And, and none of my properties actually hit the 1% rule, but they do hit a better than 10% cash on cash return. Okay. And when I first started, I almost didn't get into rentals at all because my brother um, has 10 paid off rentals and never has to work again in his life. But he said one sentence that stopped me and it stopped me for probably 10 years. He kept saying, every time I buy a rental, I'll get my money back in 11 years. And he, he, he has a different strategy. He buys houses for... Fifty to eighty thousand dollars that are mobiles on acreage, and then he had he's like a craftsman. He turns it into a really nice house, even though it was just a weird-looking trailer in the middle of nowhere. And then he rents them out. And uh, I don't have the time, I don't have the skill set, I don't have the energy to do that. And he kept saying, "In eleven years, I'll get my money back." Until I realized he he has his money. It's still his money. He's it's just not in the bank. Instead of sitting in the bank, it's sitting in a Right. And instead of getting him 0.02% interest, it's getting him better than 10% return every year. And if he sells or does a cash out refinance or takes out a HELOC, he can get that money and do something else with it. And one day that just dawned on me and I thought, I'm tired of money sitting in the bank, not doing anything. If I can get it to sit into a property. And initially it was just, if I can get better than a 10% return, how much money would I need to spend for that 10% to add up to where I don't have to rely on work for income so that I can do what I'd really like to do instead of having to worry about making money. And I think you, uh, in the pre-show we were talking about, and you said, uh, you know, you have a goal with that. And that goal was to try and make it so that there, there was no alarm clock. Yeah. <laughs> I've liked most of the jobs I've had. I've been a Marine, a cop, a truck driver, and then I teach people how to drive trucks. And uh, then I founded a nonprofit that does job placement assistance. But almost every one of those jobs has, you know, set time that it starts and, and an office to be in or a truck to be in or a schedule. And the great thing about passive income is, is kind of the model that my brother has. He, he spends a month in Colombia or Thailand and then he's in Vegas and he has quads and CDs and every toy you can imagine. And he goes and plays and he just did it in the opposite order that most people do. Most people buy all of those toys and then wonder why it takes them until they're 65 or 70 until they can retire. He retired at about 50 and then gets to play while he still has the energy and is physically able to enjoy those things. Right. So kind of my goal to find that life without an alarm clock. Hey, uh, it sounds like you're on the way, man. Um, all right. So you find the property on MLS. It's 595 is asking price. Do you pay full price? Do you negotiate? So when I first started, I would look for all those deals where I could offer under asking price and thought and mentally I was making a deal. If I can get it less, I was, I, you know, if I offered $20,000 less, I thought I'd made $20,000 if I got the deal. Right. And then I realized that asking price is just a fictitious number that's in the seller's mind. I need to look at the, the, the deal of, you know, how much can each unit rent out for if it's, you know, $1,500 a unit and my, what it would my mortgage be to where the, the asking price really meant nothing. So I started um, the market here in Washington started heating up. My first duplex, I made an offer. It was accepted, right at, right at asking price. Uh, I was outbid on almost everything after that. So now I offer a little over asking. This I offered 600 even. But I do a large um, earnest money. 
however much earnest money you can put down, that is what in, in our current market is making an offer look more attractive. Hmm. I just went under contract with a, another property in Tumwater and the, the thing was, you know, in the beginning, saving up five or $10,000 took a year. Once the uh, cash flow from rental property starts adding up, currently 100% of W-2 income and about half of rental profit is saved for the next deal. So it starts just building up the faster. Wow. Yeah. Go. So you take out housing cost and then you add in cash flow. And a lot of people have heard Dave Ramsey talk about the debt snowball to, to take, you know, the smallest debt, pay it off and then stack that to get rid of bigger and bigger yeah. debts. Yeah. It works the same once you pass um, all bad debt. Every cash flow that you add adds to that income snowball that starts making saving faster. Uh, so in the beginning, if you don't have enough to do largest earnest, it might be higher app offer offers to get the deal. But now I can do just a little over. I, I do. I save up 50000 for the earnest money, which is almost no risk because you still have an inspection clause and an appraisal clause and uh, all, all kinds of ways to get that money back. Right. And then it becomes part of the purchase anyway. So that goes into the down payment. Right. So I did 20% down because it's owner occupied. So it was about, well, the deal was accepted at 600 and then I had an inspection done and the decks need some work and there was uh, some insulation problems and just a few minor things. But when you get a professional inspection report, they're written in such a way to cover the inspector's legal side. Yep. So it sounds like, you know, the whole place is just going to fall apart and it's not worth buying because I hear all these things you need to fix. So I took select pages out of that report, sent it to my agent to send to the selling, the listing agent and said, here's about $50,000 worth of work, which it was a stretch. And I asked for $20,000 off the price. And they did exactly what I hoped they would. They countered with $10,000 off the price. So now it dropped down to 590, um, purchased it, moved in, uh, it's owner occupied. So then I got to rent out the unit from the duplex that I moved out of. Right. And the other three units here rented, I fixed really small things. Uh, a lot of times a uh, property's for sale because a landlord is like this one. They were in Texas and, did, and they didn't want to manage in Washington anymore. So they hadn't fixed anything in months, little tiny things like a door jams or there's no oh. screen doors on the sliders and, and a light switch might not work or, you know, really, really like $5 fixes. So you go through do, with the complete inspection and I spent less than $2,000 you know, I replaced some boards on the on the decks, painted them, and it was the first time I have I, I have a handyman, but it was the first time I worked on decks, and I get to put the sand in the paint and figure out how to make it non-skid, and um, so just tiny little things like that. The tenants are super happy. One of the tenants actually came over here; they were on month to month, and they were afraid that I was going to say, you know, hey, I've improved the place, so you need to move out because I'm going to raise the rent. That was the words he used. So he asked if he could raise his rent one hundred and fifty-five dollars a month and get a year lease so that's how neglected some tenants feel that's why i hear a lot of people say i don't want to inherit tenants because of all the problems and i think well right it's a very easy tenant to make happy because they've generally been ignored right and when i buy it i buy it where the current rents work so i don't need to raise rent so i of course didn't tell the person no i don't want another 155 dollars a month right. i did say well let's give it 90 days so we'll, do, we'll put the lease in effect now and in three months then the rent will go to the new rate so they got the comfort of knowing they had a longer lease, so I couldn't kick them out. And then I actually made more money. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. That's great. And it, it's great that he came to you and was just like, hey, here's here's my solution to the problem. Yeah. The, um, my first real estate agent, who is retired now, um, 
I kind of I kind of started working with him at the very end of his. He's been doing real estate for like 30 years, and he pulled me to the side on one of my first purchases and kind of chastised me. He said, you know, because he told me what I did was a mistake. I went to the current tenants during a purchase, during a walkthrough. And I said, and I do this with every tenant I've ever purchased because I, I prefer to hire or prefer to purchase already occupied rentals. I asked the tenants tomorrow, if you own this place, like if you were the owner, what would you fix? What's the first thing you'd fix or change? And then it gives me kind of things that matter to that person. Yeah. And, and with one, I mean, it was, they wanted screen doors on the sliders, which none of them had. And, and that's like a hundred dollars a door. Yeah. But that to them is, you know, it's not like they said, well, I'd really like a third bedroom. That'd be kind of nice. You know, they, they just something small. So you do that. Tenants are super happy. And I've been doing this after my first tenant. I've never had a late or missing payment ever once. And I've had one turnover ever. And that was because that tenant inherited a house. Uh, so I understand why she yeah. But turnover is expensive. So whatever you can do to limit that turnover, uh, I'll pretty much do it. Oh, sure. How many conversations have uh, you listened to where people are just like, oh, you know, we're we're getting the highest dollar for where we're at and that's sort her of stuff. But then it's like, great, but you're going to turn, you're going to spend three to five grand on, you know, rehabbing the interior of that unit. And then you're going to be another, depending on your market, you know, at another X number of days waiting for somebody to come in. You've got all of the, all the noise and everybody coming through and going out and all that sort of stuff. And then, yeah, it's just a pain. And so, yeah, anything you knew to keep your tenants there and keep them happy. And, you know, even if it's not top dollar, I don't have the expense of replacing the tenant. That's really how I look at it. One of the one of the reasons why I got into real estate was my my job kept being taken away by things outside of my control. You know, the the Marines downsized after Desert Storm. The law enforcement agencies downsized during the recession in two thousand eight. So I kept having my job taken away. The goal with real estate was you know as close to passive income as you can think. I mean, it's not passive. You still have to take a phone call. You still right. have to schedule a handyman go sign a lease or something like that. I mean, I self-manage, but even that with 11 units in 2019, I spent about 20 hours total on the rentals. I spent more time looking at deals because I love just running the numbers, but, right. but the actual dealing with the, the current rentals, um, 20 hours a year is, is passive to somebody like me who's usually worked 50 to 60 hours a week. Right. And with the rentals, to keep it passive, less turnover is what does that. Because like you said, you've, you've got to maybe do flooring or do painting and, and I'm really lazy and I don't like to do that. So the goal is to find the ways to keep the tenants happy. And, and it, sometimes it can be uh, this year, uh, property taxes in Pierce and Thurston County have gone up almost 20%. So generally this would be a rent increase year. And I, I like to do 5% every other year and have a good conversation with tenants that you know, I just purchased the place. There's no rent increase this year. There'll be no rent increase next year. But in two years, depending on insurance and taxes, there might be a 5% increase. So they have two years to mentally prepare for an increase. Right. Well, this year I refinanced two duplexes because interest rates are so far down. And what that did is it reduced my payments enough to where with the tax increase, I'm making over $250 more a month in cash flow off of each of those duplexes. So I make $500 more a month. Taxes went up. So the tax man's happy. The tenants are happy because I got to say, even though there's normally a tax increase on this schedule, right. with these refinances, I'm not going to do one this year. It helped with COVID, you know, being able to sure. say, because of what's going on, we're also not going to do a tax increase yeah, yeah, yeah. or a rent increase. And yeah, so 
I kind of picked my my type of rentals to be as resistant to recessions as possible so that I have control over this, you know, the, the jobs being taken away because of things outside of my control. A prolonged government shutdown, uh, a pandemic, a stock market crash, even in the extreme, doesn't really affect me much because a lot of people invest in stocks and I totally get that that, that would work for them. For me, I like to invest in real estate because it's easier to diversify. I keep each of my properties at least 10 miles apart. They're next to a base, a port, Boeing, a hospital, a college, you know, more than one source of tenants. And then I diversify the tenant base. I have about a third that were that are in the military. I have about a third that are from the Section 8 program. I have about a third that are retired. So even with COVID, I never had any concern with 100% of my tenants not paying their rent. Right. Uh, had no missed or, or, or late payments. And in April, when everything started getting... Uh, shut down and everybody was nervous. I offered $200 off across the board and about half my tenants said, no, thanks. We're working. We're fine. And didn't take the discount. Um, so for me, it's working pretty well to stay in those class C neighborhoods, um, you know, spread out, but next to sources of tenants. And the idea being, and if the recession continues or gets even worse, a lot of the people in a or B rentals will be going to class C very few a, B, or C tenants will be going to Class D. So there's actually going to be more tenants for Class C if things continue to, way, to go the way they are. Sure. No, it all makes perfect sense. Um, let's see. I'm uh, looking at uh, my list of questions here. Uh, the You told us how the property is performing, but you did mention um, that you, you thought you had some improvements you thought you might want to make to this property. Right. I haven't done it yet, and I, I might do it between each tenant move out. The, uh, these are 1,236 square foot units and they're two bedroom, two bath. So there's an extra bedroom here somewhere. And I just don't know how to orient it or where to put it, but um, it will be pretty easy to do. And then these are, you know, <clears throat> two bedroom to three bedroom is a huge difference. Almost a $500 gap in that one um, bracket. You know, one bedroom and two bedroom, they're usually about $100 apart. And then that third bedroom starts including families and even the section eight vouchers. So there's, when I'm looking at a property, I check the, the rents in the area off of three um, places. I go to Craigslist, I check Rentometer, and then I call section eight, the housing authority, because they're transparent and they talk about what they will pay. They pay strictly based on bedrooms and they're usually spot on for the area average. And in Pierce County, uh, two bedrooms, you know, gets $1,250 to $1,300. Then you add a garage and then some tenants ask for a shed, which was another $100 a month, which is, a, it's, you can't do that with the stock market. You can't call Amazon and say, I'm going to spend $3,000 on a shed. I want you to give me another $100 a month. Right. But when the tenants ask for some storage. You say, sure, I'll put a shed, but it'll, you know, we agreed to this increase on your lease and $100 for storage that's at your house that you can have access to all the time. And I do, you know, 16 by 12. So it's pretty big. Um, the return on that is huge. Spend $3,000 to make $1,200 a year. It's like 30% return on your money, basically. Right. And you'll notice I have a habit of getting sidetracked and forgetting what we were talking about. No, 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 it's totally fine. No, no, no. You were saying that you just couldn't figure out where you were going to find the third bedroom. But once, if you can figure that out, you know that there's going to be a $500 increase in your- Right, so $500 times four units, that's an extra $2,000 a month. So if you buy a place like this and it's cash flowing, you know, 1700 
with me here if I move out and rent this unit for 1500 and it makes more money. And then I add those bedrooms. One fourplex purchase can make somebody five to $6,000 a month in pure cash flow. So that's after principal interest taxes and insurance, so that PITI. After setting aside 10% for repairs and maintenance, after setting aside 5% for vacancy. So when you have those, those expenses being taken care of, what's left is the pure cash flow. A lot of people talk about cash flow and they forget about when you have to fix stuff. You know, yeah, 10 years, yeah. you need a roof or you know, those kind of things. And one of the, the things that's made it a lot less stressful to be a landlord is setting aside 10% of gross rents into an account. And I've never come close to spending that amount. I've, I've replaced roofs and water heaters and uh, it seems like everybody breaks a dishwasher all the time. Oh, yeah. It's the most common thing to replace. But it's not frustrating at all because my goal is to spend that money. So if I had the the what what I've always heard landlords of trying to be miserly and save the money and skip as many repairs as possible to, to, to increase your profit, that's stressful. You're always looking at the way to make it, you know, to make every penny instead of saying, I've got this much money, I need to spend on repairs. So when would the windows need upgraded? Or when can I add the screen doors to the doors or anything that makes the tenant happy, which if, when you put a roof on a building and you spend $10,000, it's not frustrating if that comes out of an account that's intended to be spent and it put a 30 year protection on an asset that I don't even have to think about again, probably going to be my kids' problem, you know, by the time that that comes out. Yeah. Oh yeah. That it's amazing what uh, designating funds will do for you when you're, when you're trying to budget and think about things. It's like, no, 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 this is prioritized. This is where this goes. And this is the purpose that it's going for. Whereas if you view it all as the same revenue income stream, it's all income. And you're like, oh, well, that's my money. That's, that's right. for this versus being like, no, no, no. Remember this is all coming off of an asset. That asset needs to be maintained. And so what are we going to take off of that to make sure it maintains itself well, again, it's, it's self-generating. It's producing that money for itself to maintain itself. Exactly. Right. And that's where the cash flow is, is in the beginning is really important because it helps build that momentum to, to get to financial freedom. If you, don't, if you don't get a lot of momentum in the beginning, it's going to take so long that I think that's why a lot of people don't even pursue it. Um, so if you buy a rental property and it adds to your cash flow and you're designating those funds towards savings because you have to avoid life creep, the most people get a raise so they get the better car or yep. they get a boat or they get whatever. So if you buy a new rental and it adds to the cash flow, at least for those first four or five, once you have four properties, then it's time to start looking at, you know, how do I spend this? What is my, how is my income increase? Right. But the people who buy one rental and it cash flows a couple hundred dollars and then they spend that couple hundred dollars are very, they're less likely to look for that next property. Right. But when the first move for me added $1,500 to my savings rate, it becomes an addiction. And I'm thinking, how can I get the next property? How do I get the next yeah. unit? And uh, I don't know where the end is because it's too easy to stop. I mean, it, and again, it comes back to me being lazy and, and I'm purchasing the sixth property now. So it, I'm coming up on 10 years. So at about eight years, I was completely financial free, financially free. And I could stop. I don't have to work. I don't have to add more properties. But the cash flow starts adding up so much that you have to put the money somewhere. Right. And and then, then the market heats up. And since January this year until last month, 
I kept thinking I couldn't find any deals. Prices kept going up and it wasn't hitting my numbers. And then I was listening to, you know, a podcast. And that's why these are so important, whether it's, it's bigger pockets or afford anything or fixated on real estate or one rental at a time. It's, it's the, getting the people on here and listening to somebody who's, who's in the business. You know, I mean, that's why this, what you do is great. I get to listen to, to somebody for an hour who's done what I want to do and I don't have to pay them for it. So right. it's great. Um, but again, I got sidetracked. Sorry. No, it's totally fine. Uh, you were talking about what's great about that is the education that are out that's out there. People are um, that don't know how to do it and are trying to achieve it. Right, right. That first rental that I did when I rented to a friend and was completely taken advantage of. He was a single parent, so I got I understood when the rent was late, which became later, which became never. And then when I went to the house to talk to him, he had moved out rented the house to someone else and was collecting rent and keeping it. And, you know, this was 2010, 11 ish. And I hadn't found podcasts yet. I hadn't found bigger pockets. I hadn't read any of the books. And, and then in that, over that next year, when I finally got a good tenant in there and you know, I mean, for that one year, I tried to give the house away. I was, I was so upset with real estate. I thought <laughs> this was a bad experience. Like there's no way I can do this. But luckily 2011, the market was down so low. I was underwater on my loan and I couldn't give the house away. But I found the podcasts and I found the books and it's amazing what a little bit of knowledge can do and actually having leases and what, where do you find a lease and what wording actually matters. And then, um, how, you know, figuring out what a rent average is or, or listening to a podcast and hearing about, uh, there's a guy named Joe that lives in Washington, DC and rents to section eight. And like most people, I had this idea that section eight meant low income housing. And that's not what it is. Low income housing is low income housing. Section eight is fixed income housing. So you have retired veterans and people with on disability and people, and so my criteria, no matter what the source of the tenant is, is the same. It's a credit score over 700 and no evictions ever. And even I, I've got two or th well, three still, section eight tenants, all of their credit scores are above 700. The one that's in the house that my friend had rented, now it's, just, it's paid off and rented to a section eight uh, tenant. The, it's a four bedroom, so they're paying me $18.25 a month for it. And the person living there is on uh, disability, has four kids, and uh, one of them has special needs. And so they get to live in this house, which is four bedrooms on the lake with private boat launch, um, basketball court, tennis court, and all of And so they, I get to experience that family living in a place they probably couldn't right. afford any other way other than that program. So I kind of wish more landlords would look at the the housing authority route uh, sure. as an option instead of just the apartment complexes. Right, right, right. No, that makes all the sense in the world. Um, so what did you, what did, I think you talked about this a little bit, but what were some of the first time things you did in this property that you acquired? So I'd never worked on decks before and my brain kept thinking that, you know, cause every time I've heard somebody talk about a deck, it's $5,000 build or whatever. <laughs> or so it's have, a nightmare. Or it's a nightmare, right? And I have two handymen. So one of the things that makes it easier to be a landlord is to have systems in place. And so two handymen that you can call at any point in time. So one's always available so that you're not really the one doing the work is important. And then I use the Thumbtack app. I don't know if, if a lot of people are familiar with that, but it's a really good app for finding contractors, getting quotes, reading reviews. And if you, if you have plumbing you need to do, you could just say, I need a new water heater and you'll have 10 estimates within 10 minutes. Oh, wow. So that eliminates a whole Google search and multiple phone calls and it's all through emails. But um, with this 
fourplex, uh, I got to work on the deck. So I got to learn that really you don't replace a whole deck. You find the parts that are, because um, it's wood, it doesn't rot all the way through at the same time. You'll have one that for some reason, the pressure treatment failed and, and so you replace one board. I spent less than a thousand dollars on all four decks, including paint and, and labor. And uh, I'm trying to think of what else I did for this one that was new. I got to do LVP, uh, luxury vinyl plank flooring. Okay. Uh, in the unit that I moved into. And that was scary to look at in the beginning because it looks very complicated, but it's basically playing with Legos. Just oh yeah. Yeah, just yeah. So that'll cool. be what I put everywhere from now on is waterproof. It goes in kitchens, bathrooms, everything. It's very cost-effective and durable. So yeah, sure. I remember walking into a developer's property. He was developing specifically for, um, cause he'd had, he'd built rentals and modified rentals in the past and stuff and owns rentals. And he was selling this development as these are rentals. Like nobody should live in these. You should use them as, as rentals. And he walked through every square inch of them and was like, this is why I did this this way. This is why I put this in because you're never, you know, if the water does this, it's not going to go through. It's not going to have this damage. You know, I'm going to, put in this uh one thing that he did that i was really surprised at was uh he put in solid core doors on the inside and i said why did you put in solid door? he's like because there's always a kid that kicks their door and they will kick through a hollow core door and now i've got to replace a door whereas if i make a solid core door they're not kicking through that you know at worst i might have to do the jam you know part of the jam or i might have to replace you know part of that but i'm not out a door yeah like, oh that's a great idea. I, I do basically the same thing. Anytime I work on a door on the inside, I won't go through and take out all the doors and put in solid core. But if there's ever any damage or anything, I'll put in solid core because some of my tenants are roommates. And I think that there's just a more uh, not secure, um, a well, higher level of privacy. With yeah, yeah. You just sound muffling, you know, all that stuff. Right. And I've got a friend who focuses on Airbnb and he, they're doing really well. I haven't done any of that yet. Um, even though his tenants tend to be 10 months or seven months. So he doesn't do the way I think of it as like, you know, a weekend or a week. Yeah, or yeah. It's almost long-term tenants. My, my laziness kicks in and I just like to have that one year lease that you renew once a year. Um, but someday I'll probably try Airbnb just because it makes almost a third again, at least a third again, the amount of money. Um, and then oh, that yeah. would be a good reason to do solid core doors on the inside too. Yeah. I have that. So, you know, with that, one of the things that I do is I put coated locks on yep. um, all, each unit. And then if there is a roommate situation, I'll do it on the inside too. Uh, tenants really like not having keys. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Anything you need to make it easier for them is, is great. Right. And, you know, then that for you as a landlord, peace of mind of not having to worry about keys that are floating out there. Don't have to worry about keys. Um, can tell a contractor, here's the code I want you to use. So I don't have to meet up at the house if they're going to go replace a dishwasher yeah, And I could just go and swap out the codes when the tenants move out. But the first time took me 15 minutes. Now it probably takes five because it's really easy. It's yeah. cheaper than going and buying keys every time. Oh, yeah. Well, and as you said, the laziness factor, like I never have to go and make time to get to the store to get the keys made or to arrange a locksmith or any of that sort of stuff. It's just, nope. all right, software fixed, done. Moving on with my day. Exactly. Uh, all right. Uh, so um, last uh, question here um, uh, before we wrap up, um, knowing what you know now, is there anything you would have done differently on this property? Pay attention to interest rates. Okay. 
I probably lost five great deals this year because when I purchased this property, interest rates, um, owner occupied, I got 4%. And I didn't pay attention as interest rates dropped because for every percent that interest rates go down, the price of the property can go up 10% and your payment is still about exactly the same. So I was looking at duplexes that I had gotten for 300,000 that are now 325 and I thought, well, that will never work. Instead of looking at the interest rate and realizing that's actually lower payment, it'll cash flow better. And it definitely was a good deal. I should have made an offer on. And that's why I started making offers again is because from a podcast, I heard someone talking about with interest rates down, here's how the math works on your payment. And I just, I'm purchasing a triplex that is costing more. I was paying $150,000 a unit. This one is 175, but the interest rate is 3.1 and my payment will, and that's not even owner occupied. So the interest rates are so low right now that my payments for that will be less than if I paid my, my goal of 150,000 a unit. Oh, wow. so that's what I would do different after this deal. Got it. And so what I thought I heard you say there was that you weren't even open to looking like you, you didn't even analyze the deal. You just saw the purchase price. You had your numbers in your head and you're like, ah, it's not even worth doing the analysis on it. Cause I know Perfect. what that's going to be. Right. And a lot of us get chucking stuck in that, not that same pattern of here's my goal. And for some people it's the 1% rule, which yep. I have not seen in Washington state. And for me, it was a 10% return, which came from, I know the expected rents. And this, this was the price I was paying for the place instead of thinking this is my monthly payment for the place based on interest rates and price. So that's kind of, kind of brings me to an idea where a lot of people talk about the, the, the uh, market crash that they expect any, any minute now, which they've been talking right. about since 2013. So a oh, lot sure. of people have been waiting and not getting into the market because they, they're expecting a crash. And they've missed out on you know five years, ten, seven years of appreciation and cash flow and principal pay down. But yeah, well, real, real talk for a minute. My, um, uh, so I have my realtor's license, uh, and I have a lot of the realtors I work, or sorry, a lot of the investors I work with asking me a lot. You know, when, when do you, what do you think is going to happen? When do you think it's going to crash? Like it has to change. And I just keep pointing to the factors, and I'm like. Guys, we have uh, six weeks worth of inventory, you know, in this market. A healthy market for us is eight months worth of inventory. Go to any of your lenders. They've got, you know, multiple tens of millions of dollars that are out in pre-approval letters for people. Like the, um, the, uh, the rental market here in central Washington, depending on the property manager, is between one and three percent vacancy rates. Um, I, you know, you're still seeing multiple offers on all new homes within the first three to four days you're seeing multiple tenant applications within the first 24 hours like even if there were to be a decline there's not going to be a stop like and, and no. that's that was what everybody i thought think happened in march everybody was like oh we're shutting down that means a stoppage and it's like no it means a pause and it also means that everybody's still making money so what is what's your disconnect here but it was something nobody we'd never had it before you know it's been two generations uh three generations in some cases since a global pandemic so people just didn't know how to react and that's why you saw especially hard money got scared at the the bejesus yeah. out of them yeah uh everybody that i've heard that's not getting in or not making offers because they're afraid of the crash and they want to wait and you know, not catch the falling knife, but they want to catch it when it drops pretty far. It talks about the market and they forget that there's about 400 markets in the United States. And yes, San Francisco 
New York, LA, Seattle, you can work from home because of the pandemic. So people will be moving. You want to avoid uh, riots. You want to avoid crowds because of this. So five, maybe six markets might go down or soften, but they have to move somewhere. And now you have people that are in, that used to pay $4,000 a month for rent for an apartment in New York are paying $1,500 a month for their mortgage in the town that they moved to that's maybe an hour outside. So actually prices will keep going up. There's only one factor really that can cause the, the prices to come down. That's if, if somehow the feds go, oh, we're gonna raise interest rates to 6%. That's right. the one thing where everybody would go, oh, we have to adjust prices. And even yeah. then, that doesn't affect prices until they sit on the market for a while because time on the market is what makes a seller lower their price, not, I think I should lower my price. They, right, it right. Sell for two or three months, then they start taking lower offers. Yeah. So we're years away from any kind of change. So, oh, yeah. Every market I look at, um, I mean, uh, if, if I can get my hands on the MLS numbers, the one I look for is sale to list price. And, you know, that's uh, consistently and everybody I've talked to West Coast, uh, Midwest, East Coast, you know, they're sitting at 97 to 102% of sale to list. And it's like, okay, well, again, there's more demand than there is supply. What do you, where's the concern? That's why my recommendation is people should be looking for the deals and, and you know, saving for their down payment, but running the numbers constantly because you can't wait for prices to soften or go down and then you just go buy a place. You have to know what the current rates are and, and what your numbers would be and have that expected goal. And maybe if you're afraid and your job's not secure or something, you have a bigger reserve or you look for a better return on your money, but you still should be looking for those next deals. Right. Cool. Uh, okay, so here's the 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 part where you get to plug yourself. So, uh, Dion, if people want to connect with you and, and find out more, how do they get hold of you? So, mostly for real estate, I try to help people on Facebook in groups like Bigger Pockets or Afford Anything, um, the Real Estate Rookie. And I am not a broker. I'm not an agent. I'm not a paid mentor. I, I sometimes take phone calls and try to pe- walk people through where they're at. But just look for Dion McNeely on Facebook and. Uh, it's weird with passive income from rental properties. It's, it's like I've figured out this really simple math problem that takes less than 10 years, no matter what a person's making to, to you know, reduce their housing costs, increase their savings rate, replace their income to where work becomes completely optional and nobody cares. Nobody <laughs> wants to hear about it. So when somebody that is focused on that is in a financial group, is listening to podcasts, um, I'm totally welcome to people reaching out to see if there's something I can help with. I can't walk you through a flip. I can't tell you how to wholesale. I stay in my lane. I know exactly how to house hack, how to do small multifamily, how to run the numbers. Um, And if I can help, I like to do that. Very cool. Well, awesome, Dion. Thank you. No, thanks, Mike. I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, happy to. Hopefully I can come back someday. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I want to hear about the next two or three ones. Again, if you say, you know, you're hunting on five right now, I mean, as that snowball just continues to go and go and you just have that, you know, income accelerator going on. I mean, your foot's to the the pedals of the metal and uh, you know, these three kids are going to be fortunate to have inherited an empire. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to that too. My son uh, worked on getting debt free and I was working on his savings for his first duplex. And we kind of planned out he's uh, in his early thirties. And by the time he's 40, he'll be able to do whatever job he wants because he won't be out there looking for the job that pays the most. 
so many nuggets out of that conversation with Dion. I I just have to go through my notes and point out some of them. You know, things like uh, considering what it is that you're doing on your personal side in order to help you acquire your properties. How are you preventing yourself from having a lot of expenses so that you can have a lot of income in order to afford these things? You know, looking at house hacking as a way to grow that snowball of uh, capital that you've got in order to go. Uh, and then the fact that Dion's able to find all of this stuff on the MLS is just the amazing part. How many of us are struggling to try and find deals where it just doesn't quite pencil out on the MLS and we're, we're waiting and waiting for off market stuff. And yet Dion's able to make this deal happen. And it was just sitting there just needed to be negotiated and uh, needed less than $2,000 into it, and he's already making money on it. And man, what an opportunity. Uh, thank you so much, Dion, for being a part of the show. If you want to catch up with him, like he said, find him on Facebook, uh, check out Bigger Pockets, check out Fixated on Real Estate. Uh, you can also reach out to me. I'm happy to connect you. If you or someone you know is in real estate investment and you would like to come and talk about a deal you've done, please reach out to me at info at dissectingthedeal.com. And if you have made it this far in the show, I feel like we provided something of value for you. If you would like to provide something of value back, please go into the app or whatever it is you use to listen to this podcast and give us a like, uh, leave comments, feedback, uh, a review would be appreciated. The algorithm that watches these sorts of things and helps us reach new viewers is entirely dependent upon you. And I would appreciate your support in trying to get this podcast out to as many people as need to hear it as possible. Thank you again for listening. You've been a wonderful audience and we'll see you on the next one. Stay safe.